Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Sitting across from me is Guy Smith, whose career is coming to a close. He's ended his career as he's always raced on his own terms. We're at Silverstone, with the venue for his last race, which will be in the brand new uh, Bentley Continental GT3. And this, of course, his home race in the Blancpain Championship. Uh, delighted to have you here, Guy. Welcome to uh, Radio Show Limited's network of... Uh, channels. Uh, I want to take you back, way back, to how it all started. Uh, wh- how and when did you get involved in motorsport? And, and in fact, was this was the Smith Smith family up in Yorkshire a motorsport family? Yeah, I think um, really started obviously. I think like most drivers, with, with my dad always had an interest in, in motorsport, mainly road rallying. So he would do a lot of um, kind of road rallying. He'd, he'd have a he'd have a Mark One Escort, and um, he would sort of work on his car and, and do the road rallies, which you know, he, he did really well and, and had a lot of fun with. But um, as time went by, um, you know, the, the family business was, um, my granddad passed away and, and dad took over the, the, the reins of the family business, Swift Group, and uh, motorsport kind of took a, a bit of a sideward step. And um, during that time, um, there's a young British driver called Dave Scott, who uh, who dad sort of started helping a little bit. And um, Dave started in go-karts and went through to Formula Ford, uh, Formula 3 where he uh, he did very very well racing against the likes of sort of Tommy Byrne um, Martin Brundle James Weaver etc etc and he was also a test driver for, for Lotus F1 team so he was sort of I guess kind of like my hero growing up I would have been probably 5 or 6 at the time and um, because David sort of come through motorsport obviously through karting um, he had he sort of uh, had a couple of karts we ended up basically driving on them and, and and that was that we we used to we used to i remember we used to, had these two carts and um, um i would sit on my dad's knee and um he he would do the pedals and i would do the steering because i couldn't reach the pedals and my uncle would come along and it was literally on, on the grass but in and out sort of this sort of tree circuit my uncle would come along and he'd wet the grass and um so you go from sort of having grip to having no grip and it's amazing what you know teaching learning about car controls at, at, at you know at a very young age so so that was kind of it really and the natural progression then obviously was then to go into into kart racing um but then you couldn't do it until the age of 10 so i had to work to the age of 10 yes no cadet class in those no days class. that was that they could race at eight, i think it was eight isn't it eight or seven yeah. of a cadet class i remember when that first came in but i think i commentated on you doing what would then probably have been junior britain yeah. Um, at, up at Felton in Northumbria. Yeah, yeah, great, good old days. I mean, you know, it all, all started back there racing you know, against people like Ralph Furman, Dario, um, people like Jamie Spencer, so many, Richard Westbrook, all these guys that, that are still, and Oliver Gavin that are still racing, of course. Um, you know, great, great times. And, um, you know, you're just doing it at that age for really purely for fun. You just want to do there. Obviously, you want to be win and be competitive, but you, you've really... You're just doing it for fun, and I think the natural progression is you keep going, and and you know year by year you kind of do your best. And I was having more and more success at the karting, and you know I wasn't particularly academic at school. In fact, I was shocking at school. And um, <laughs> but I think my school realised that, and they were kind of they were really supportive of my racing. They let me go away and have time off because I think they knew that while I maybe wasn't very academic, I was I was getting life skills and I was learning a lot by doing it. So that that was fantastic. And um, yeah, just did the general progression, you know, through through karting. You know, I was able to win the British Championships in, in the juniors and. Um, um, drove for for CRG in Italy and, and was second in the World Championships. Uh, who beat you in the World Championships? It was a guy called uh, Alessandro Manetti who uh, who went on to you know it didn't have a particularly great car career but he was very successful in, in go karts and uh, stayed in carts for a long time, didn't he? Yeah, he stayed in carts. There's people like Danilo Rossi. Obviously, Magnussen was in the same team as me. Um, so some really really great drivers and. Um, and then I, I basically um, moved into Formula First, the Formula First win series at Brands Hatch. That was my first sort of uh, foreign sort of car racing. And then moved up into uh, Vauxhall Junior the following year. Uh, Vauxhall Junior was quite a new category 
in those days I think were you in the second, second year, year? Yeah. Yeah. yeah second year of Vauxhall I remember Warren Hughes did the first year of it and then I remember you in that the second they were quick cars they were very quick in a straight line didn't have a lot of aero a lot of power that was a big step up to come from Formula First to that how did you get on yeah, it was good. I mean, I really enjoyed it. You said the, the cars were great. And I think what the sort of the attraction to that at the time was it was kind of, as a championship, it was kind of in vogue. It had slick tyres. So, mm-hmm. we, you know, it was as opposed to Formula Ford, which was obviously on treaded tyres. Um, so I did a year of that and uh, I came second in the championship. Won, 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 I think, maybe four or five races, but had a few DNFs, you know, along the way. And um, my, my sort of management at the time, the guy that was helping me, his sort of belief was, you know, try and get as much experience as you can at a young age. Uh, in different categories, so I had a, I had a sort of a, a strange career path because I did Formula F- Vauxhall Junior, and then I went and drove Formula Ford with the Work Swift team, yeah. um, and where I finished second behind Russell Ingle. Um, so I had two second, yeah, you know, two second place in the. Who beat you in Formula Vauxhall Lotus? Uh, it was um, it was actually Martin O'Connell. Oh. It was a great driver, yeah, yeah. a brilliant driver, yeah. um, and so so he he beat me in that. Um, then it was Russell Ingle and Formula Ford. Then I went and did Vauxhall. Lotus, yeah, yeah. Vauxhall Lotus uh, finished third in the championship in that, and then I went and did Formula Renault. So literally, just bounced from every junior series that there was. Now, at this stage, you are how old? So I would have been um, by the time I went to. So obviously, I moved up into cars at seventeen on my seventeenth birthday, and then uh, by the time I did Formula Renault, I would have been probably twenty or nineteen, twenty. Which by these days is, is an old old. You know, if you look at Formula One, were you still thinking then? I know in your early career, you know, you said you were doing it for fun. When were you thinking about doing this as a career? Because at, at the time. You okay when you went to Swift? That was a works drive, yeah. but at the time you're still being supported, presumably financially, by yeah. by yeah. the family. Yeah, I mean, I think at that point, whenever you start, generally there wasn't really the Red Bulls and all these kind of mm. schemes that they have now. Um, so it was literally, you know, it was trying to find funding from, you know, whether it be family or or support, you know, past sponsors, supporters. You know, we, we certainly with with Swift, we were able to go suppliers and, and try and sort of get five grand here and five grand there. And, um, and and it worked quite well, but um, I mean, obviously, the, the the hope is to become a professional. Once you once you get into car racing, it's serious anyway. So at that point, you're not just doing it, you're not doing it just for fun. You, you're thinking, right, I need to go somewhere with it. Whether it, at that time you're probably aiming towards Formula One or IndyCar or something. Um, so it's serious, but um, you know, still there's still a long way to go to actually get to be to be paid. Um, but I did the Formula Renault Championship with Manor and, and we, we had a really good year. We won the championship and won pretty much majority of the races. And um, at the end of that year, I got to test drive the Williams Formula 1 car with, with Damon Hill, which was, um, which was amazing because obviously having only driven a Formula Renault car to jump in a Formula 1 car was, was quite a big step. Do you still remember that? I do. I remember it really well because I remember obviously... Where was it? It was actually here at Silverstone. And um, I remember obviously then they had paddle shift and I remember going like literally to, to Widensee to the local sort of, you know, um, seaside Arcade where they had a car game paddle shift game because they didn't really have um, uh, simulators and stuff back then so I remember <laughs> playing on the game and I was absolutely terrible and uh, like literally leading up to this, this test with Williams I, uh, I, was, I was a little bit concerned that I wouldn't be able to do it but to be honest with you it was one of the easiest cars I've ever driven and I don't mean that disrespectfully I just mean in respect of a, as a so, as it was a so well sought as a package mm-hmm. yes it was quick and it was super fast and you could break you know, incredibly late Compared to what I was used to, but it was. So which, which year was this guy? So this was ninety-five. Oh. So it was the. I think they, that year they had uh, Damon Hill and uh, Villeneuve just signed from that year. Mm. The car was amazing. It was fantastic. You know, still had the slick tires and all, yeah. and all the downforce and everything. It was a Rothmans car. So yeah, it was fantastic. And probably you know, if I look back, um, I probably should have made more of an effort to to stay in touch with Williams. And you know, I was twenty 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 one at the time, which again, as we said, seems quite old now. But at the time, you know, Damon was probably. You know, 32, 33, mm-hmm. and he was winning the world championship. So it was only really at that point they didn't really look at young drivers. You had to sort of do your apprenticeship and get your experience yeah. and the rest of it. And of course, that's since probably Jensen, that's probably probably changed. But yeah. so yeah, so then then after that, I won the championship, and then I went to um, I moved up to Formula Three with Fortec uh, with the Mitsubishi powered car, and uh, my teammate was some Colombian kid called Juan Montoya. Um, so he, he'd just come from um, he'd come from Paul Stewart Racing where he'd finished third in the championship mm-hmm. uh, with PSR in Vauxhall and I'd obviously come from, from Renault and then um, came to the first race here at Silverstone and put it on pole and then won my first race and thought well this, this F3 stuff's easy you know I've come in got pole position won the race and these are the, this is the day when British F3 
was like the world championship of F3. If you were going to go on and have a career in formula racing from wherever you were in the world, you had to have British F3 on your CV. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was, it was, it was really, that was, that was the, the you know, because like now it's kind of quite diluted, but then it was, you know, post post racings, Western racings, all, all those kind of big, big teams and, 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 and some fantastic drivers. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was, it was great. I, mean, I enjoyed Formula 3. However, winning my first race I think that was my last uh, win so I kind of peaked a little bit early but it was great experience and and, um, and with Mitsubishi engine um, it, you know we had some some issues along the way with reliability and performance ultimately and I think Juan and I finished fifth and sixth in the championship at that point then that's you know that's the worst result you've had in a championship to that point um, does that knock your confidence a little bit and then does that make you then reevaluate what you're doing trying to make a career out of motor racing i think it stalls your momentum a little bit for sure and i think at that point you really start to ask yourself some questions you know can i do this have i got the ability to do this um but i think that because i knew the reasons because i knew with the mitsubishi engine um i knew that we there was issues with that and so i had a reason or i i believed i had a reason as to why mm. um and i was second in, i was actually second in the championship up until the final two races yeah. and then and then i had a couple of bad races and, and i dropped right down so you know i was i was there all the way through um so yeah, it, it dents your confidence a bit, but you just you know, second like thing, you just get on and get on with it. So, um, so then I actually not the best move. I, I then decided <laughs> to stay in Formula Three, and I went with DC Cook Racing, which right. was uh, Derek Cook's team, and um, driving with Paula Paula Cook. Yeah. And it was a it was a, a cheap deal. Not that that should be the, the the driver behind it, but you know, on paper everything looked quite good. Was that Paul Haig running that team then? Yeah, Paul Haig. Yeah, and he's yeah. you know he's a great guy. You know, great guy. And I think my engineer was Chris Gorn. Um, so all 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 on paper looked looked really good, but um, it just got to. It, I think again, I qualified on pole for the first race. Had a, had a decent race, but it was just one of those seasons that it just didn't really. It, it kind of became obvious that I was there to provide data, and mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to so if I, if I was doing well, it was kind of like oh well, yeah, great. But it was it was more focused towards yes. Paula, but that, you know, I, which I understand. So then, so then I um, went out at the end of that year to look at. I went to Laguna Seca to look at Indy Lights because I think Helio Castroneves and Damata were doing Indy Lights uh, that year, and and, and 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 they were sort of you know doing really well with it, and it looked a fantastic series. So I went to take a look with my two dollars to the pound in those days. So you got good, yeah. you got was, good value in those days. It was really good money, exactly. And I remember going out to Laguna and thinking, "Wow, this is amazing!" You know, seeing the Indy cars and and and, and plus you could buy loads and loads of clothes. Um, so that was always a good thing. But it was good. It was great, and I, I really opened my eyes. And I actually met uh, Stephanie Hansen. So mm-hmm. he was running a team at the time, and uh, got chatting with him. And maybe because he was a European, and I was European, we got we kind of hit it off. And um, so we were able to sort of put together. Part, well, half a deal for the following year in 1998 um, to do to do the championship. So, so the first half of the year, and um, yeah, it went really well. You know, I won a couple of races, had some pole positions, and that was a good car in those days. The yeah. Indy Lights car in those yeah. days was a very good car. And that was a, that was a competitive championship. It was. It had the had the, the, the Lolo chassis with a big Buick engine in it, um, but it was good to race on the ovals. It was a great experience and, and a new challenge, and the street races and everything else was, was fantastic. So, and it felt like a felt like a proper racing car. So then I kind of shifted my focus. I thought, well, you know, at that point, I already kind of decided that I was going to go more towards the IndyCar route than, right. than Formula One. I'd realized that my, my, my chance would have passed. I hadn't really got the momentum. Um, so I went down the down towards Indy Lights. And yeah, I mean, I loved it. And I really, really enjoyed it. And at the end of that year, I um, had, had a few talks with some IndyCar teams. There was quite a lot of interest. But they all sort of said, you know, really like to have one more year of, of doing, of doing, uh, of doing uh, Indy, Indy Lights. Did you consider moving out of the States at that point? I didn't, you know, and, and, you know, I look back at it now, you know, having looked back on my career, the amount of time that I spent in the States, I probably should have done it, I, you know, <laughs> um, I think a lot, there's a lot of other British drivers that for whatever reason, they've all commuted. Um, and I think, you know, before I had children, I think in, in, in hindsight, I wish I'd done it now because it would have been great life experience. But, you know, I've spent a lot of great, great years in the States and made a lot of great friends. So, um, yes, I probably should have moved out there, but, um, but I didn't, <laughs> fortunately. When so so that you're still at that point you're still looking at single seaters and yeah. and you were uh, looking at IndyCar yeah. which was I mean hit pretty good days for IndyCar that and, and, and undoubtedly something you touched on there hmm. Indies IndyCar and Indy Lights the most variety of racing because you had ovals you had what the Americans call natural terrain road courses you had street tracks you had it all out there and if you were going to do well in that championship you had to be a complete driver. 
Yeah, and it was a real learning curve. I think my first ever race over there was actually at Homestead on the Oval. And I remember, <laughs> I remember going there. Actually, funnily enough, they, 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 they were rushing to get the car ready. And they went out, and it was the scariest thing I've ever done. The car felt horrendous. And actually, they set the stagger the wrong way. So <laughs> it was like, I'm thinking, Jesus, I'm, I'm going around really slowly thinking, I, I just don't think I can do this. But as it turned out, and once we got going, I actually really enjoyed it. I, I, it's funny, you know, because you look at, you know, uh, Dan, Dan Weldon, you know, bless him, and, 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 and Daria, and a lot, a lot of the Brits that have gone over to race on the ovals, they've actually really excelled on ovals, mm. considering it's not really our, our natural forte, sort of forte. Yeah. But, but for whatever reason, you know, we seem to have done quite well, and, and I found the ovals really good fun. I mean, people say, oh, yeah, just going round and round in circles, oh. but there's a, lot, there's a lot to it. I remember Dan, when he first went out there, God rest his soul, um, I'd been involved in doing his PR over here before he went out there when he was doing British Formula 4 and stuff like that, and we had him on the forerunner of, of midweek motorsport when he first went out there. He was doing Formula 4 2000 um, in the States, and he said, and I said, he, he won the, the oval crown, and I said to him, How's that what he said? I've got no clue. I just go out and do what the team tell me to do. And if they tell me 22 seconds is a good lap, then it's a good lap. If 22 seconds is a bad lap, it's a bad lap. And when they say, what's the car doing? I kind of try and tell them and they do something. And then I go out and drive it a bit faster or a bit slower. I mean, it, because we don't have... What he was saying now is he didn't have the vocabulary yeah. to explain, but he, he could kind of put it into words and the team went oh yeah we know what you mean you need to do a little bit of this or a little bit of that I think having no preconceived ideas just getting in having respect the thing is with ovals well they're all racing but particularly ovals you've got to have respect you've got, <laughs> you've got to get in the car and you, you've got to and I think I mean, if you've got a bit of healthy respect and you, and you listen um, and not hustle the car because if the car won't do it you can't make it do it you know right. maybe on qualifying you can for that one lap you can hang on but you've got to have respect and you've got to know you know what the car can do and can't do, and not try and force it. And it's interesting because the car changes a lot over the course of the race as well. And you can make adjustments to yeah, it, which which is very unusual in Formula racing over yeah. in Europe. Yeah, yeah, it is. You can you can do quite a bit to it. So so it was good. It was actually it was quite a nice change to go and do something different, different circuits. You know, new challenge with the with the ovals. Um, so I kind of embraced it, and then, um, but but again, the IndyCar route there wasn't really openings. There was some discussions, and um, and then Stefan kind of approached me, um, sort of end of sort of '99, mm. and said, um, you know, I'm looking to do a sports car team to go and race at Le Mans and do the American Le Mans series. You know, would you be interested? Because we'd, we'd gotten really well from when we, when we worked together in Indy Lights, um, and I was like, you know, I just I, I don't know. I, I still kind of thought, you know, I still want to do IndyCar. That was kind of what I was hoping to do. And I hadn't really, you know, I hate to say this, but I hadn't really followed Le Mans as closely as I probably should have done. Um, you know, I think a lot of young drivers, it's maybe slightly different now, but tend to overlook it a little bit. Um, and it, so, and to be honest with you, it was literally all I had. So I, I kind of did it. And that's, and, 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 and um, in the Reynard 2KQ, which was not the best car. No. Um, things, things fell into uh, focus. For you then. We're with Guy Smith, by the way. We're talking uh, on this long one on the Radio Show Limited network of, of channels. And we're up to 1999, as you heard Guy say there. The American Le Mans series had just started. Yeah. First year, we'd done Petit Le Mans at the end of 1998. And the first full year was 1999. And there was Stephanie Johansson giving you giving your career a life now. Now, were you paid for that? Was that a proper... Was that a proper drive, or were you still taking money then? That was a free drive. So basically, it was, so, so it'd gone from sort of. To be fair, my last year in Delights, um, I actually got paid a little bit, um, so it hadn't cost me any money. So I sort of crossed the threshold then. And then when I did the, um, the the sports car thing with Stephanie, it was a free drive, so it wasn't physically costing me money. So I wasn't technically a professional, but I was on the cusp. Uh, I had my fingers on the ladder, kind of thing. Um, and the American Le Mans was such a great series. I mean, it was the start of it. You know, you had these great names. You know, you know Orbelin and, and and Jules Dad Gunon and Soper and you know the Manishes and Capellos and Christian. All these great names. Um, so it was somewhere definitely. You know, to be amongst that company. You know, you you suddenly went from being other kind of drivers of a similar age and ability to, to amongst these kind of legends almost. Did, and did you find when I first went over there in '98, and particularly in '99 for the first year of the championship? What really surprised me, maybe it wasn't such a big surprise to you because you'd already been in the IndyCar paddock, but the atmosphere in the paddock in the US was completely different from racing in the UK, which was all very cut and thrust and certainly different from, say, Formula One or the big European formulas where everybody was very secretive. No, this was an open paddock. You'd see David Brabham sitting, oh, hang on, oh, I've got a story here. Brabham's sitting at BMW. Oh, no, he's just having a cup of tea with one of the BMW drivers, which you would have never seen in those days over here. No, and I think it's 
still true today, actually. I, I must be, there must be a cultural thing, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the racing. I have to say, the racing, you know, not to be misunderstood, the racing is incredibly hard. It's as hard as anywhere else. So um, just because the environment is slightly more relaxed doesn't mean to say the racing is any easier. It's, it's incredibly hard. But but you're right, the environment is is, is a great place to be. I know it's because it's sunny all the time. That that helps. <laughs> um, and usually usually you're in a nice place. But um, no, just generally, I think everybody's a little bit more open. Um, you know the nature. You're not really in garages so much. You're kind of in more in working out tents. So everybody's kind of walking around more. Whereas whereas here in Europe, everyone's out in the truck or in or motorhome or garage or wherever, and no one really kind of moves all weekend. So I think in America, people are walking around, and so yeah, it's just got a different vibe. And I, and I think you know it's hard not to embrace that when when you, when you're exposed to it. So did that did did a little light bulb go on at that point? So f- f- point number one, you're not having to pay for it, which is yeah. great. Yeah. Point number two. Yeah. It's a great atmosphere. Racing's good. Point number three, on the downside, the car wasn't great, as, yeah. as you said, and you weren't as competitive as I think we all thought that Reynard might have been. But did something click there where you thought, hello, there might be something here? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at Reynard's success in IndyCar and then they're building a sports car, I think, wow, this is, this is going to be great. <clears throat> and I think we all thought that. And um, while the series was great and the atmosphere was great and everything was good about it, um, you know, as a, as a racer, I wanted to go and I wanted to go and win and be competitive and um it, it became quite clear that while the car had some pace in it on its day in the right condition with you know if it was co- we also had yokohama tires which which were great but they, they operated in a certain you know conditions and when the when the conditions were suiting the tire the car could go really quick but um and also it was a little bit fragile it was very fragile particularly the gearbox so it, we'd have races where we'd be quick and then the car would break down and there'd be races where I wouldn't drive. Um, that was a, effectively, that was a 675 car, wasn't it? It was yeah. a very, very lightweight car and that Absolutely. was part of its That was part of its appeal, but it was also a part of its Downfall. fragility. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it was built, you know, it was, it was designed by um, IndyCar engineers that there were, everything was super lightweight and, and, and beautifully made, but just not built for endurance. So that was its fundamental downfall. But what, what happened was... Um, John Wickham came over. John Wickham was a team manager who Stefan had worked with previously at Spirit and, and Audi and everything else. And he was a team manager. And I didn't know John. I just it just it was just another Brit working in the team as far as I was concerned. Um, but kind of got to know him a little bit. But what was happening was, although I was disappointed with the performance and I was probably quite disheartened by it, um, John was able to see that there was times where I'd be faster than Stefan or I'd be yeah. a match for Stefan. It was uh, uh, you know certainly at the time was very much still you know still on it mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, he was obviously taking note of that, which 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 was great, which which obviously ultimately came to help me down the line. But um, but during that year also was my first exposure to Le Mans. Um, so I went to Le Mans for the first time, and I I, I, don't, I can't remember the, the race particularly that well. But you know, obviously I'm sure we didn't fin- well we didn't finish. Um, but I remember winning Rookie of the Year. I remember turning up at the parade and them thrusting this trophy in my hand, and it was me thinking. What have, what, I have I done? Done? what have I done? There's a big heavy trophy. It's like rookie of the year, and I'm like, it's for the fastest lap of a rookie in practice, or whatever. So, so that was nice. That was a nice surprise. Um, but just generally, the whole event, you know, really impressed me. I mean, you know, we got there and it was fairly busy, and throughout the week, as, as you know, it builds and builds and builds. And um, you know, by the weekend, you know, you felt like a superstar because it, it, it was all these people and all, you know, all the glitz and the glamour, driving at night, you know, all, everything that sort of. Especially about Le Mans, you know, just just absolutely just took me took me away. Really, it's almost overwhelming, isn't it? The first time that you go there, anybody who's going there for the first time, whether it's a driver, a team member, a spectator, somebody from the press, I always say, try and take your first Le Mans in because there's only one time that you're there for the first time, yeah. and and you can never take enough photographs, you can never build enough memories because it is absolutely overwhelming you really it's difficult to explain to someone who hasn't been there before and and you've been to some big events let's not forget particularly in the yeah. states yeah. but Le Mans is just something over here out on its own isn't it yeah it is I mean it's, like I say, it's so unique and even, even even to this day I mean you know you can't even if you've been many times like you have you still go and you're still impressed by it you're still Every like Jesus this, this is this is this Every is huge time. I mean and, and it has that effect on you and I think that's why it's so special. It's like probably like the Indy 500, all these, they're events within themselves. Mm. And um, so, so it was my first exposure to it and, I, and then I kind of got it. I can't, yeah, this is, this is, this is actually a really good home for me. I'm really enjoying this. I, I, I wasn't thinking about single seaters. I wasn't thinking about IndyCar. I was thinking about how, how can I, how can I get back in here again? Um, but ideally, I'd love to be in a position where I'm in something a bit more competitive. Um, but, but didn't really have any kind of thoughts or ideas as to where that might be. Um, so, and then it was already at the end of the year that, that John sort of, um, you know, John, you know, is a great guy, as we all know, and incredibly quiet, keeps everything to himself. Um, 
Basically. Brian, the size of a planet, though, logistically yeah. brilliant. Yeah. He's planning, he's scheming all the time. Yeah. Wick, John Wickham is just a late. We should do one of these with him, actually, okay. and, and sit, sit down with him. So, did he come to you then at the end of the year? Yeah, he basically came to me, you know, and just said, look, you know, just, just so you know, um, at the end of the year, I'm going to be leaving. Um, Bentley, Bentley's going to um, look and set up a, a race team, or they're going to set up the race team, and um, they want to return to Le Mans. We've got the new GT coming out. And I want to make a return to racing. And um, so I'm going to go and do that. I said, they're also looking for a young British driver because they want to, you know, they want to come out of the shadows of Rolls-Royce. They want to establish mm-hmm. themselves as a young, you know, new, f- fantastic GT car. Still both the same company in those days, of course, Rolls-Royce yeah. and Bentley, before they were split apart. That's right. So they, they'd split. So so obviously Rolls, uh, Rolls-Royce had gone to BMW, uh, Bentley to VAG, and... Um, and so they, were, they wanted to come out of the shadows, and, and going back to Le Mans was a perfect way of doing mm. that because there's obviously such a rich history and, and success at Le Mans that by going back and trying to, you know, emulate that would be the perfect way to kind of shout about what they're what they're up to. When you think about it, that was a bold move at the time. I remember all of that happening mm. as if it was yesterday. Possibly not quite as clearly as you do because you were even more significantly involved in it than I was. But I remember when that first got started talking about I remember going up there and talking to Brian Gush um, Sarah Perris was involved on the PR side and Wick as well of course and saying are you sure this is what you you know they wanted to chat with us about what was going on are you sure this is what you want to do because it was a bold thing to do wasn't it very bold I mean very bold if you think where the you know financially the company at that point was was you know they were definitely not making money they were losing money and and um you know, so it was a big commitment. You know, it's a big commitment to, to set up a, a, a new team, go racing with you know LMP one at the highest level. <laughs> so it's a big step, and um, but you know, obviously, fantastic move for them. It's, it's a move that's paid off. Um, I remember when um, actually my last race in America, I, I can't remember the the actual bet now. I had a bet with my mechanics, and which I lost, and I ended up bleaching my hair bleach blonde. Uh, not not a great look not a great look <laughs> and literally within weeks I had to go and have a meeting at Silverstone because I think they were testing here at Silverstone with yeah. James Weaver and there was Sarah Parrish Brian and I don't know who else maybe John John was in on the meeting and they were kind of sort of giving me like a bit of an interview and I turned up with like at this point and started to grow out a little bit so I had like, oh, sort of, like these like sort of horrible hair sort of combination and um, I remember having a conversation which went really well and um, they basically said to me you know you've, you've You've got the drive, but you've got to lose the hair. And I was like, yeah, no, no, no problem, no problem. So you didn't need asking twice about that. You understood what an opportunity yeah. it was. It inherently, straight away, you thought, oh, hello, this could be a new chap. Did you, did you, you can't have known what was going to come after it, but did you realise what an opportunity that was when it was being offered to you? I did, because, you know, I, I think um, this, this was, when I, you know, when I look back at the, that year and I was looking for this opportunity to go to Le Mans, to be ultimately be in a, in a factory team to try and win outright, you know, I never really expected it was going to happen. Certainly not so soon. And there was definitely far more, dri- you know, many many more drivers that were more qualified than I I was to to be taking that seat. To be to be fair, but you know, these things happen. You get a break, you get an opportunity, and it's about making the most of it. And and um, you know, things happen, don't they? It, a lot, quite some, usually by accident or whatever. Things happen, circumstances happen, and and I got the drive. And and then it was a case of you know, sort of trying to sort of go with it really. Now, if Le Mans was overwhelming when you went there with Stefan mm. the first time, mm. what was it like going back with Bentley overalls on? Because this was a huge story. Let's not underestimate this. Bentley and Le Mans, in terms of the history of that great race, going right back into the early 1920s, there is a huge amount of that history that is inseparable. Yeah. British brands at Le Mans. We still, I mean, this year when we go there, there will be people with... Bentley hats on. There'll be people with Jaguar hats on and they haven't been there for two and a half decades. You know, there is something essentially very British about that race that's held in France. So to go there as a modern day Bentley boy with everything that that entailed and that was played upon as well, that all of that history was evoked. What was that like? Were you ready for that? No, it was was huge. I mean, it was huge. I mean, because in reality, I'd, I'd done the race the year before I'd done a handful of laps because the car kept breaking down and I'd done a bit of testing. I'd done a bit of testing in, in the in the Bentley, but was I ready? Probably not. Not really. I wasn't really, I wasn't an experienced uh, Le Mans driver. You know, I was a, I was a wannabe Le Mans driver, but, 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 you know, I, I, I definitely wanted to take the opportunity and, and, you know, it was, um, it was great experience, you know, working with, um, with Stefan Ortelli and of course, Martin Brundle, you know, learned a hell of a lot. And I think the thing is, you know, when you're, when you're sort of learning, I mean, I must've been 27 mm. times when I, 
but when you're driving with drivers of a similar age, your learning curve is 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 fairly sort of you know, progressive. It's fairly steady. But when you're learning with people like Martin Brundle and you're sitting in a debrief and watching how they work and how they operate, yes. man, you 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 grow up and you you just go through. So so I think that year, um, I think that year by the beginning of the year to the end of the year, I'd gone from being like a sort of a a sort of a um, so I don't know. Uh, imposter almost you know imposter kind of sports car factory driver okay. but you said wannabe to yeah. at the start of the yeah. year you were a wannabe Le Mans driver you were in a, a factory team so did you feel a bit like oh, what am I doing here a bit like an outsider um, in your own mind I'm not saying the team um, honestly I, I, I don't know I think I, I think I just tried to embrace it the best I could and just yes. tried to take it all up and try to do the best job I could in the car and you know in the testing and stuff you know, I'd, I'd been as quick as Martin and, and Stefan, so I felt I felt like on pace and stuff. I felt like I justified it, and, and I justified it to myself. And what um, was and what was that first Bentley P1 like? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was the best way I can describe it. It was raw. I mean, it was it was a fast car, but it wasn't an endurance car. It was hard to drive. It was edgy. Um, it was very difficult in the wet. Um, the mapping wasn't great. Um, the, the, what, what happened was when the tyres were cold, the car would used to search left and right, you know, in the straight line. It used to, you know, used to pull around. I remember Pete, Pete Ellery. I remember once that we all used to complain about it. We used to test a lot of Snetterton because obviously RTM was close by, and um, we'd all complain about it until the tyres got warm after three or four laps. It would be fine. And um, I remember maybe two or three two or three years later on where we actually converted one of the cars to a two seater yes. and taking Peter out. And we set off down down the back straight at Snet, and the car's snaking from left to right. And he looked at me. He just like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I know no, what no, you mean. mean. And, and like same, like, like the most. Ellery was the car designer, yeah, we yeah, should yeah. say. Yeah. Actually, I have to say, he was brilliant. You know, uh, brilliant, brilliant, did a brilliant car. But the like on, on the Mulsanne, because the Mulsanne, the road's quite crested, mm. uh, with obviously with all the traffic going down. So it, it was pretty, pretty, pretty larry. But you know, again, it's all part of the process. And and um, you know, unfortunately, that year that the car it, it rained a lot. Uh, Martin was doing well was leading um, or was up front and then it started raining and he started complaining that there was a um, they, they wouldn't shift gear mm. and what happened was was the rear brakes were getting too hot in testing so they put these ducts to cool the rear brakes but what we hadn't done is we hadn't tested in the wet and what it actually was working as a scoop so water was going in and it was going onto the activator so it wouldn't shift gear so quite often he was stuck in gear then he started to dry out a little bit and he came back in the rain and said oh, it seems to be okay now it seems to have fixed itself so great so then he comes in after like a triple stint and I get in and as I'm getting into the car it pours down I mean it like like just throws it down so I, I go out the pits and as we've done a driver change he's got out all hot and sweaty I've got in I'm, I'm sort of normal but the whole cockpit just steams up so the side windows are steamed up and literally the front window is steamed up and there's a the, the wiper which is pretty pathetic is, is, is in the middle so I'm kind of like cricking my neck over to the middle of the cockpit trying to see where I'm going <laughs> They put me. They decided they're going to put me on intermediates because it's, it's only a shower. It's only going to last oh, yeah. for a, yeah. yeah. So 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 I leave. So I'm into intermediates. I can't see where I'm going, and I'm struggling to keep up with the safety car. Then I'm sh- trying to shift gears, and it won't change. I'm thinking this is my first, oh, my, my first, you know, foray into, and I think I'm leading the race. I'm either leading or I'm second or somewhere up the front, and I'm like, oh my god, this is this is this is horrible. Um. Anyway, what ultimately what happened was the car got stuck in gear in sixth gear, and. What I should have done is I came up to the uh, Indianapolis. It's stuck in Indianapolis. We came to um, Arnage Corner. I tried to get on Arnage Corner in sixth gear, which obviously was never going to happen, and the car stalled. So I'm stuck in sixth gear, and I'm at Arnage. And what I kept trying to do was put the clutch in, trying to start the engine, trying to get it moving to try and see if I could... Anyway, and basically tried to get this, try and get it back on the starter motor, which, which I tried to do, which ultimately the clutch went, and it was a disaster. Now, what I should have done, which was if I, if I would have been... A bit more mature and a bit more wise, which like experienced I, I, guy, experience, yeah. which is what Andy Wallace did was was not even try and make the corner and just straight line the grass in sixth gear. Yeah. And that's, so he just basically didn't even try and take the corner. Kept his footing, went across the grass. Once he got to the Porsche corners, he could go through at relative speed. Managed to get back to the pits, and they 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 fixed it, and then they finished the race. So 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 you know it's all part of the learning curve. But and that year, Audi won the race. But Bentley won the podium because the guys came on in the old right, suits yeah. and the old flying yeah. helmets, yeah. the old racing helmets yeah. and stuff like that. And at that point, I think everybody realised that Bentley was serious. And not that we didn't before, but the fact that the ben- that Bentley boys came on in those white suits and Audi all of a sudden, albeit being a sister brand, went, oh, hello, what have we done here? Mm-hmm. 
And in fact, the next year, Audi entered three cars, so that the you, the idea being that you guys couldn't even get on yeah, the podium. Safety in numbers, yeah, exactly. And and so basically, at the end of that year, actually was a really good result. Third was a great result, obviously. And um, but they decided that um, the sort of feeling was was the car, although, although the car was very good, it probably wasn't the complete package if they were going to win. It needed to be easier to drive. It needed some. Um, it needed some, some alterations so they decided to commit to building a brand new car for 2003 so while that took a lot of resource and effort they said right well, what we're going to do is we're going to run one car, in, uh, one car in 2002 and we're going to just develop the new car throughout that yeah. year ready for 2003 so it was, you know, it was, a, it was a, st- a strategic move but um, you know, quite a big commitment and um, they kept the, the three guys that uh, stayed on that, that were on the podium in, in uh, 2001 and um, and then they kept me on as well. So they obviously felt that you know, um, you know, they obviously felt I wasn't been an imposter, and they felt I had something to offer. Um, and I, I did most of the testing on the two. I heard you made a good cup of tea. In yeah, fairness, that's what Gushy said to Absolutely. me. He says that that lad from Yorkshire can make a decent cup of tea. Well, it's from all my time at Manor. They, every time I used to go to Manor, they, the first thing they said was get the kettle on. So I think I think I probably probably learnt from them. But um, but you know, I think I think um, yeah. So so then in two thousand two, it was we had the new car and it was instant. You know, we jumped in that car and it felt like jumping into. Um, you know, it was, like, it was like jumping into a road car. It's one of those cars that um, you could drive around the paddock, leave the pits, whatever, and it just felt easy to drive. It just, it just, it just drove like a road car. You know, normal race cars until you get over sort of yeah, exactly. Until they get over 100 mile an hour, they feel yeah. horrendous, like a tractor almost. So this this car was 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 nice to drive. Like to drive. a Bentley should be. Like a Bentley should be exactly. And and, and obviously on the track, it was in, instantly we knew that um, we knew that the car was a big step over the previous car. I remember seeing it at Sebring in all three. Yeah. When it was effectively un- unveiled, the first yeah. time we'd had a good crawl around it and have a look at it, and I just thought to myself, "That looks like a weapon." Mm. And at Charles Dressing, said at the time, "That looks like it should be hanging under the wing of some bomber plane, ready to be unleashed." Because it did; it looked yeah. like it, it was still recognisably, you know, a development of the car you'd had before, but everything was sharper, yeah. everything was optimised, everything just. It was literally jaw-droppingly beautiful, and the colour helped as well, of course. But when you were doing the testing, did you immediately know then that that car was a quantum leap over what you'd had before? Yeah, I mean, it, it was um, it, w- it was a quantum leap. But what we were doing throughout that year, once top, towards the end of 2002, leading up to three, um, at that point we knew that um, Tom uh, Christensen and Dinda Capella were going to be coming over for 2003. So they came, they came over and did some testing with us, and we were doing back-to-backs with the old car and the new car. And um, you know, you know, they were like. I mean, it was interesting, like with Tom, you know, because obviously with all his ex- experience and all his success, you know, he was like, yeah, the two thousand one car is a great car, but it's not an endurance car. <laughs> and he jumped in the two thousand three car, said, the right, that's an endurance car, because it, it's, 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 you know, endurance racing. It's not just about like Formula One, where it's about that lap time. It's there's so many variables and things it has to be good at. It can't be a one trick pony uh, to win to win an endurance race. And, and the car was fantastic. It was, um, it was. Uh, yeah, instantly better and, and, and a big step forward and yeah went to Sebring and um, you know immediately yeah the car was one of the hardest tracks in the world the car oh. the car was, was fantastic and I think it looks it looks like you said it looks it looks purposeful but even now it still looks it doesn't it oh. hasn't really aged you no, know because no. you know how old it is it looks great it still looks good you, you could roll that out today and it wouldn't look out of place yeah. on, on any World yeah. Endurance Championship yeah. Grid. We're with Guy Smith. We're talking about his career as he's decided to uh, go back to Yorkshire and concentrate on road rallying, which we'll talk about in a moment. But we've got to talk about 2003 Le Mans. Um, Everything had been leading up to it. It was the third year of the programme. There'd been big claims made for the programme, and the third year was the year that it was meant to happen. Ultimately, it did. I remember everything was optimised. You were the first guys who I ever saw. This was under John Wickham as well, of course. Um, videotaping your pit stops from two or three different angles and then having a look. That started in 2002, if I remember rightly. Um, and extraordinary. That must live with you, clearly, a Brit standing on the top step, looking at all those union flags down below you, national anthem playing out. That's the end of it. That's the culmination of the race. But so much went into the race itself and even leading up to it. How much of that now do you remember? Or is it just that, oh my God. And you got to take the checkered flag yeah, as well, of course. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you're absolutely right. Because obviously you do all the work and the testing and the, and the 24-hour tests and all the effort that goes into it. And it's such a big team effort. Um, you never really allow yourself to think that 
it's ever going to happen because you never want to put yourself you know, into that position. But you just, you know, we, we, we had a really good race. We, we had Joe Hausman was our engineer, one of the best guys I've ever worked with, you know, incredibly calm. He was one of these guys that, like you could say to him, Joe, I've, I've only got three wheels, the wheels come off. And he'd sort of say, no problem, you're actually faster with three than four. And you'd believe him, you know, he'd <laughs> give you that kind of confidence. And of course, you know, between Tom and, and Dindo, um, I had great co-drivers to kind of, you know, take some pressure away. And we and, and we worked incredibly well together, even though we only did a, a few a handful of races together. And and the race itself just went, just just was literally the perfect race. And, and, and you know, that that's what you need at Le Mans. And it almost felt like a... It felt like doing a test, you know, because you come in, bump fuel tires, go drive fuel tires, and it was one of those. We just kept cycling through, cycling through, cycling through, and we just kept our head down. I mean, there was a little bit of um, an issue at the beginning of the race, um, but uh, that was a, a, the only real scare. But apart from that, it was it was uh, very straightforward. I remember looking back when we all met up at the Grosvenor for the what was the traditional Bentley Boys celebration, and we got the car in through the doors by putting it on its side. Mm. I remember filming all of that and doing some stuff live for TV down there. I remember I'd looked, I had a copy of all the hourly results at Le Mans. There's a result comes out at the top of every hour and Bentley led at the top of every hour for the whole 24. Your car, I think from the top of my head was something like 24, 25 minutes in the pits. Of, in the whole yeah, 24 yeah, hours. It was barely a minute now. I don't know if it's still a record. At the time, oh, at the time yes. it was a record for the least amount of time in the pits. I think the number eight car had an issue with a headrest coming loose or something else. But, you know, they, they also you know, had, a, had a great race, but just not quite as, as perfect as ours. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just fantastic. And then you get to, you know, I get to do the last, whatever, two hours or three hours, which is a, which is a great honour and, and, and a great um, trust in Bentley and myself. But but it could have been a nightmare if you've messed it up. Well, that's exactly it, and the, it's amazing what goes through your mind when you when you you know you're going around and you're looking at that 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 Rolex clock and you're thinking, okay, right, two hours to go, and you come back round and, and it's like you know sort of you know one hour sort of fifty seven minutes and it's, and it's the slowest two hours of your life, <laughs> and you start every little noise, every gear shift, every little noise you hear, and you think, God, you know, any, anything could go wrong now. Please not on my watch. Um, and as we saw, like last was it last year, the year before with Toyota, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anything's possible at Le Mans. So. So yeah, an incredibly long uh, couple of hours, but um, yeah, to cross the line, um, you know, was it, it, it was a, a huge rele- release of, of emotion. But at the same time, it, t- it did take a long while to really sink in because you know you kind of, I'd love to win it, but you just never quite, it, it, you just don't expect it to be fair. So at that point, then you've won the twenty-four hours of Le Mans. Um, it, it didn't get the coverage that it should have got uh, in the mainstream media. Although France went bongers, I seem to remember. Didn't you drive the car down the Champs-Élysées? Yeah, we actually drove down the Champs-Élysées the following day. So we had the so actually Derek drove the car down the Champs-Élysées and, and we were in a couple of uh, Bentley blowers following, which was again, you know, pretty pretty impressive to see the cars going down, obviously all the traffic and all everything else. So so yeah, you know, it was cool and that's that's, you know, what makes a brand like Bentley so special, you know, being able to do all these kind of cool things that go with it. You stayed in sports cars, obviously. You've ended your careers in sports, career in, in sports cars. Yeah. Now, um, I'm I'm aware of the time, so I, yeah. we we're gonna we're gonna skip on a little bit. Yeah. Um, Bentley coming into GT3 racing, racing the cars that they sell. Yeah. Again, a bold move. We talked about it with the prototypes. The Continental is a beautiful car. It's a beautiful Grand Tourer, mm. in the broadest sense of the word. Mm. GT3 and balance of performance allowed it to go up against Ferraris and McLarens and cars that genuine sports cars, yeah. genuine genuine high performance sports cars. Yeah. That couldn't have happened without GT3 regulations, could it? No, I mean you could argue that Bentley's the only true GT race car, Grand Tourer, which you know is yes. a is a is a Grand Tourer. Uh, the other cars are, are sort of supercars. So, mm. um, but you know you're absolutely right. I think it was a, it was a, it was a very bold move, but. I think it's one that you know Bentley deserves to be at the racetrack. It, 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 it's heritage is motorsport. Um, to come back, you know, in LMP, you know, just wasn't viable with the with the cost and plus all the other brands. You know, with Porsche, and Audi, there, it wouldn't have made sense. Um, GT3 racing is, is is what they sell, and um, you know, it, it you can sell the race cars, you can race them. You obviously have you have you know your, your M Sports and so on and so forth. So it's a great platform, and I think. Um, you know, to see a Bentley out there racing and beating the likes of Ferrari and Porsche and stuff right. is fantastic. Um, I'll come on to why now is the right time for you to step away in a moment. Mm. But 
I, when I skipped forward there, I, I didn't want to skip over and I have, so I want to go back a moment. Just those American years mm. in the ALMS when you were out there racing prototypes yeah. as well yeah. with a, a number of teams, including yeah. the Dyson guys yeah. and, and all of that. Happy, happy days for me, those. That was, I mean, we didn't have a World Endurance Championship in those days. We didn't need it because yeah. it was all in America. Yeah. No, yeah, going back to America, I mean, obviously when, when the, um, so when uh, I did the Le Mans in 2003, I did, I did Le Mans in 2004 with, with, with Audi UK and finished second with Johnny Herbert again very close to winning mm. um, and then after that um, you know Bentley decided they weren't going to continue with racing um, and uh, I, I got to meet with, with, with Chris Dyson I got to and met him pre- previous race uh, that year got on really well and, and, and long long story cut short but ended up driving with Dyson for, mm. for nigh on sort of eight nine years and, and, and had a great partnership racing their prototype program uh, winning, winning the American Le Mans Series uh, championship in 2011 so it's been yeah fantastic fantastic years as I said great great race in America great circuits um, but you know when, when I got the call in 2013 middle end of 2013 from Brian Gush from, from Bentley and he said right we're going to go back racing again um, you know we'd love for you, for, you, for you to be a part of it um, we're going to go in a GT car which is something I'd never really done I mean I'd yeah. done I'd literally nothing but I thought well you know I'm, I'm 39 it's an opportunity for a new challenge something different um, a bit like with the Indy Lights and the Ovals it's, it's sometimes good to challenge yourself go out of your comfort zone a little bit and, um, and, and, and I've relished it I've really enjoyed it and it's been great to watch as well, Guy. A tough question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It's an impossible question for you to answer. 2003 Le Mans, y- y- your best race? You had some great races in the LMS, some close races, dash for the line type close races after three and four hours. But think about your, your best race, your most memorable race. Le Mans obviously has got to be up there. Mm. You drove a lot of different cars. Mm. Audi R8 as well, of course. Yeah. Another ca- We talked about the Bentley being a, a classic car yeah. that had a three-year lifespan, effectively. Yeah. Two and one. Yeah. The Audi R8 had a very long lifespan and yeah. generally thought of as a, a modern classic. Yeah. Um, the GT car as well. So yeah. tough, tough questions. But let, best race got to be Le Mans 2003, hasn't it? Yeah, I think I think it's probably the, the best one, and it's it's obviously the most well known. I think I've got three that kind of stick out in my mind. There's, there's that one there. There's um, the Pretty Well Challenge race, um, which is uh, which I won in Utah, which was Bentley's first ever win in America mm. on my 40th birthday. Um, so that that was that was a great one and, and nice to do it with Dyson again because it yes. was sort of pulling the Dyson Bentley connection yes. together. Um, so I was working with the the two teams really that I've driven for a majority of my career, uh, and um, I would say Silverstone in 2014 where we won here, which was Bentley's first GT win. Yeah. So you know, so important races to Bentley, but also equally important to myself as well. So um, you know, I'm proud of those races. Um, I always say I'd like to have one more, but you know you got to take what you you get in life and 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 go with it really. And what about what about that Audi R8? You got to drive the Audi R8 when it was in its pomp, and and that is generally thought of as one of the best um, sports prototype cars ever built. Yeah, fantastic. The first time I actually ever drove it, I drove um, I did the drove the Golf Audi with yes. Stephanie Hansen and Sebring, Sebring where we we had a, we had a good shot. We had a good chance to potentially win it. Um, so that was a good race. And then obviously raced uh, the the Audi UK car at Le Mans. So yeah, another fantastic car, different again to the Bentley. You know, many people think that the Bentley is an Audi painted green, which I can absolutely categorically say is completely not true. Um, but uh, yeah, that in its own right is is a very very different car to the Bentley. But you know, in in its own way, very very efficient and um, obviously an iconic car as well of of its time. I've got a great picture of you in that car going into turn one at Sebring that Gary Dodds, our photographer for the American Le Mans series web stuff that we did, took. And I've got it blown up. It's still in my office. Okay. I'll have to get you one day to sign that. It's sparking from the front end. It's superb. So we've been talking to Guy Smith here at Silverstone on the eve of his final race as a Bentley Works driver. Um, why now? Why now is why is now the right time for you to step up? You've done it on your own terms. You've not waited till the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Bentley have been very uh, understanding yeah. about allowing you to to, to step away. Um, I know the new car was was part of of that decision, wasn't it? Yeah, I think um, you know it's one of those things. I've probably been thinking about it for maybe maybe a couple of years now. It's sort of crossed my mind. People always said, you know, you'll know when the time's right, and I I didn't really fully understand that but there was a couple of races where you're sort of sitting there and you're thinking mm, you start to think of weigh things up a little bit and, and, and not so much the danger but just you know do I want to still be doing this and, and I love it and I, and I love the racing I, the, the purity of it I love all of all of that and the teamwork and everything else but 
um, probably about two years ago, I set up. Um, I've got Greenlight, which is a which is a sports um, uh, sports marketing business. So working in different sports, which which is taking up more and more of my time as it's becoming uh, more and more successful. Um, I'm also more involved with the family business as well. Um, plus, there's, there's other projects that I'm working on. Swift Caravans and Motorhomes, by yeah, the way, the me. Swift Group. Just thought I'd get that in. I never know when I might have to borrow one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And of course, you know, I've got a big family, I've got three daughters as well that are grown up. So, you know, it's all part of the sort of uh, the process of, of, of moving. You know, um, I, I, I love I love the racing. I really enjoy it. But I just felt like, you know, the last couple of years, I felt like I've got a lot on my plate with everything. And um, I just need to take some pressure off. And I, I think I was getting to the point where I was, you know, I'd be on my bike at half five in the morning for a couple of hours. Then I'd be at like a board meeting at Swift and then I'd be doing something else. And then... And I was just running myself ragged. And I'm thinking, you know, if I'm going to be a factory driver, I need to give yes. it 110%. And I, I felt that I probably wasn't doing myself or the team or my teammates justice if I was just kind of, for want of a word, better word, bluffing it. You know, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So so I just thought, well, it's time to step back a little bit. I mean, I'm still open to, to racing, whether it be in America or pretty well. Well, that, well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. So not a works driver anymore, although... Yeah. I'm absolutely certain that Bentley will find you something to yeah. do that has the word am ambassador <laughs> in it somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, and let's hope that that continues. Yeah. But you know, not, you're not going to s- stop filling in your forms at the end of the year and getting your racing licence. You're not stepping away completely here. No, I think, I think I, you know, whether it be you know, hopefully driving a Bentley or whether it be rallying or whatever it may be. You've still got your rally car. Some rally cars. I still do, I still do some, some forest rallies in, in the historics and, and we've... Um, I've got a, a Fiesta R5 as well, so there's plenty of stuff. There's plenty of stuff to, to keep me busy. So yeah, yeah. So um, so between that and 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 like I said, you know, if 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 I decide that or if there's an opportunity to do some some stuff with Bentley uh, with customer teams, you know, I'd like to work with them. Um, I'd like to work with the drivers we've got here at M Sport and try and you know nurture them. And obviously we've got Jordan coming into the team, so I'll help him. I just felt it, I just felt it was it was time to pass the baton. You know, you know. I think Bentley would like me to carry on. I would like to have tried to carry on, but I just felt that I probably wasn't doing um, justice. And I think that there's a lot of young drivers that they they deserve that chance. That chance that I got when I moved, um, you know, to be a, a, a factory driver, I got that opportunity. And you know, I'm sure Jordan wasn't expecting it, and he got a call out of the blue to say, "Right, you've got your chance." You know, that's what happened to me in some respects. And 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 it's his turn to make history. You know, carry on the history for, for Bentley. You know, I can't go on forever, can we? So, and I'm 44 this year, so I'm not. You know, it's not like I can keep driving as much as I still love it you can't go on forever yeah you just get faster as you get older that's what I tell everybody anyway Guy Smith thank you for a career that has brought me personally and I know a lot of our listeners an awful lot of excitement and entertainment you've been a gentleman all the way through it in everything that you've done in all the dealings that we've had together through the good times and the bad you are a true Bentley boy and a top bloke thanks for being with us thanks John thank you very much This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.